puppet masters almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know, the less you really do Carl Wood and Company Side chatters, it is no surprise that the public has seen the needle on rocket and jet propulsion technology move very little in a series of decades that have shown rapid advancements in nearly all other technological areas. Because we know the sciences have been highly controlled to leave out the roads that lead to anti-gravitic crafts, and that the true advancements in these areas are completely quarantined by black projects, and at this point, maybe even a breakaway civilization. Yet we do have bright minds and alternative thinkers who have tinkered with the realms of ether physics, alchemy, and a more holistic systems approach, and have stumbled upon many of the world-changing applications that the capstone cabal would rather us just not know about. And if we dig a little deeper, I think we'll find qualities and principles of space, the galaxy, and life itself have been altered in similar ways to keep vital information from filtering down to the people. And I don't think I'm alone in those thoughts, because today's guest, Paul LaViolette, has spent most of his life working against the grains of conventional science and has his own models for not only flying saucer technology, but also the cosmology of the universe itself. He received his BA in physics from John Hopkins, his MBA from the University of Chicago, and his PhD from Portland State University. He is the first to predict that high-intensity volleys of cosmic ray particles travel directly to our planet from distant sources in the galaxy, a phenomenon that's now confirmed by scientific data. He is also the developer of subquantum kinetics, came up with a new theory of gravity, and has advanced a number of new ideas and theories on a whole plethora of areas related to space, the stars, and even the ancient world. His books include titles like Secrets of Anti-Gravity Propulsion, Tesla UFOs and Classified Aerospace Technology, Earth Under Fire, Humanity's Survival of the Ice Age, and Decoding the Message of the Pulsars, Intelligent Communications from the Galaxy. It is a real treat to have him here, a guy who gets more done before his morning coffee than most of us do all week. Paul, my man, welcome to the higher side. (laughs) Well, I've slowed down a bit these last... (laughs) Two days. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like you deserve it, man, because you have a really impressive resume. And I've tried to touch on most of it, but you've done so much. And of course, I'm no scientist, but I really do like the exploration of bright minds who have been suppressed in these areas. Tesla, Thomas Townsend Brown, Victor Schauberger, just to name a few. Mm. But the commonality that I see, at least on a basic level, is a more holistic systems approach and an acknowledgement of the ether, things that I know you find important as well. And I guess to kick this off, talk to us about these things and what's wrong with conventional physics that has all these bright, highly educated minds missing that really juicy stuff. Well, the ether, about 100 years ago, they did an experiment and they interpreted it that there was no ether as a result of the Michelson-Morley experiment. Mm -hmm. But the thing was that the experiment was done in a certain way, and now somebody else has redone the experiment, and all they did was rotate the whole apparatus they used 90 degrees. So they were, instead of measuring ether flow past the Earth, they were measuring vertically. And now this has proved there is an ether. Hmm. There were many other experiments that proved there was an ether before that. Also, I happened to confirm a prediction I had made that there would be a vertical ether flux into the Earth. That's what generates the Earth's gravity field. Hmm. But I guess you could pretty much wipe out most of modern physics and you wouldn't have much of a loss. (laughs) Keep Newtonian physics, what Newton came up with, those equations, Maxwell's equations, things like that. But once you get into quantum mechanics, that's completely haywire. For example, Randall Mills has produced a device that gets energy out of water. It's actually able to generate very high temperatures. He gets a megawatt of power 
out of something that would fit in about the size of a little bigger than your refrigerator. And physics says, oh, that's impossible based on quantum mechanics. He's saying that the electrons in a water atom are able to jump down to a lower energy state and release that energy. So physics says that's impossible. But if you revise quantum mechanics in the right way, which I have done, it is possible. So the problems with physics are, in effect, keeping us from having these new technologies. The ones I'm referring to are over-unity technologies. In the case of Randall Mills' technology, he was burning water, so he was actually getting energy from the water, which is something you know, a lot of people might find surprising, that you can get energy from water. I met one fellow at a conference this past summer in Idaho who has developed a car that runs on water, special kinds of spark plugs. Nice. All these people at the conference who had these devices they were researching were very afraid how long they would be living. Right. They sort of keep quiet who they are and what they're doing, except at this conference they talk about it. Do you remember the name of that conference? ESRC Conference, Energy, Science, Technology Conference, something like that. Interesting. Yes, this does seem like some of the most dangerous material to get into because it upsets the apple cart of a lot of big corporations and just the way things have been for so long. And I've heard people suggest that even the patent system itself is in place to kind of send up a red flag whenever someone files for something in these wheelhouses. And then, of course, they're visited and co-opted or it's taken to the deep state. So, yeah, I mean, this is super fascinating stuff for sure. Yeah, I used to work at the patent office. Hmm. One point they had sent out a directive to all the examiners. So this is not a legal, not by law. It's just the head of the patent office was instructing examiners how they wanted them to examine patents. And anything that was over unity, in other words, free energy or produce more energy than used to run it, they were supposed to reject the patent. Hmm. So that's, you know, if they end up following that directive, that's why a lot of these patents are getting rejected illegally. It's illegal to do that because U.S. law, I'm talking about U.S. now. I don't know what they do at the other patent offices, Europe and so Mm -hmm. on. But in U.S., the law is if there's an invention that's new and it works and nobody has thought of it before, you're entitled to get a patent. So they're not saying that you can only patent what is green with physics. The law was not written that way. So unfortunately, a lot of the examiners are rejecting patents because they don't agree with what the physicists say. And the physicists, are unfortunately, they're wrong. Hmm. Interesting. So one of the big topics at hand is anti-gravity propulsion. I really loved your book, Secrets of Anti-Gravity Propulsion. And of course, it's a super fascinating area. I heard you talk about some of your own developments in the works, as well as several versions of this kind of technology in previous interviews. But how far back can we take it? Where do we have the first people developing this type of craft, as far as you know? Was it reverse engineered from crashed alien ships, or is there a path of more traditional development? Well, more traditional development, because if you look at the work of Townsend Brown, which goes back to the early 20th century, He was born in 1905, and when he was a teenager, instead of going out and playing ball, he was in a laboratory working on experiments, electrogravitics. He's a fellow that developed the field of electrogravitics. He demonstrated that there's a connection between electric fields and the gravitational field. So he was able to engineer gravity using electricity. He would put high voltages, like 100, 150,000 volts, charging up a capacitor that had a heavy dielectric insulator between the two plates, and it would cause it to move towards its positive charged side. So he further developed this, and he was able to get devices to actually lift off the ground. He would pulse it with 
high-frequency DC pulses, you know, actually lift off. And then he had other versions that would fly around like a maypole. That was a little different principle. That's what you call electrokinetics instead of electrogravitics. There, it's dealing with unbalanced forces due to the ions exerting forces on the craft. So he was approaching the Navy back then. He made demonstrations to the Navy. And one story says that he had gone to the base in Hawaii and put a demonstration there with three-foot diameter disks flying around a gymnasium around a 50-foot radius course. And it was suspended from the ceiling. And these disks would circle around. It was reported in a magazine in Arabia that they were going several hundred miles per hour, mm. although this was supposed to be kept quiet. They wanted all the results classified. Of course. So about that time, Brown made a report to the Navy called Project Winter Haven as a proposal, actually. And he was proposing that he could design disc-shaped craft with Mach 3 capability, which was pretty good in those days. They hadn't achieved Mach 3. So back in the 50s, this was in 1952, that was an amazing, unbelievable speed. And in there, he says in the proposal that he has been required not to publish any of his work. So that's why you hear about Einstein and not about Townsend Brown. Einstein could publish his work. Einstein was wrong, and I say wrong, period, with special relativity and general relativity. Einstein failed to connect electricity and gravity. He was looking for the connection for decades until he died. He couldn't figure it out. He knew there was a connection because he knew Brown. They both worked on the Philadelphia project. The Navy tried to cover up afterwards by changing Brown's resume that had been posted. I guess it was his discharge papers. They changed the record so he was discharged two years earlier. So it wouldn't look like he was in Philadelphia when the Philadelphia experiment was going on. Right. That's the only reason I can suspect it was the motivation. <laughs> well, that was one of my favorite parts of your book, because a lot of people who are critics of the Philadelphia Project story say that the logs of the USS Eldridge don't match up with the dates of the proposed experiment. But it's easy to fake logs if you're trying to actually cover up a secret covert project. And it seems like if Brown was involved, it's easy to do the same thing to his logs as well. Yeah, well, the Navy's in charge of whatever documents they put out. Right. Fortunately, we have Brown's resume, which was made public before the Navy made their changes. And we know he was in those locations, that he was in charge of minesweeping project, they called it. That was the cover name. He had brought $50 million from England. He was in charge of the shipment of that gold from England to the U.S. It wasn't said what it was for, but when you realize about the Philadelphia Project went on just after that, you can figure out what it was. And $50 million then was a huge amount of money, considering the size of the U.S. Defense Department budget back then. We were just starting to get involved in the war, I guess, at that time. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's probably good they kept it quiet because they did get into some pretty frightening stuff there. Yes. And are you alluding to the stories that when the ship dematerialized or went through its dimensional shift and came back, whatever happened, that a lot of the crew on board were embedded in the equipment of the boat and just apparently died in some very gruesome ways. Is that what you mean? I believe it did happen because the physics I developed explains that it should happen. Oh. <laughs> so it's confirming what the theory predicts. Basically, if you manipulate gravity, which is what they were doing, you can make things first become invisible and then actually dematerialize. Hmm. To do that, you have to make a negative gravity field. Hmm. Easier said than done, I'm sure. Yeah, if you can make a G-hill rather than G-well, like the Earth's gravity field is in a gravity well, you should be able to make objects disappear. 
for the same reason, this physics theory, which I call subquantum kinetics, and it's had something like 13 confirmations that I've documented and even more that I haven't, which are predictions that were made and subsequently confirmed. So I have great confidence in this theory. Plus, I found that it appears it existed in ancient times even, and it, we're not the first to discover this. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> so for the same reason, when you get outside of the galaxy, where the gravity potential goes to a higher level, in other words, we're sort of in a gravity well here being in the galaxy. If you go out away from the galaxy, gravity potential increases. And according to this physics, once you get above a certain threshold, then photons will lose energy instead of gain energy. It takes more of a impulse for something to be created in terms of matter creation. In this physics, you don't have a big bang. You have matter being continuously created. And all the data supports the continuous creation, cosmology and disproves the Big Bang cosmology. I've written a paper on this and published in the Astrophysical Journal, which is the same one that Hubble published in. And in that, I disproved the Big Bang theory back in 1986 and show that the correct interpretation of the cosmological redshift is that light photons coming from a distant galaxy lose energy as they travel. And as a result, their spectrum changes to a redder wavelength. The idea that it's due to expansion is incorrect. And this has been disproven, is shown to be incorrect in a paper I wrote, which didn't receive that much publicity. Astronomy magazine did publish something briefly about it. But it didn't change the thinking of the mainstream cosmology community. I did get letters from some of the renowned astronomers who thanked me for the paper I wrote and were very happy about the conclusions. Of course, they were already having doubts about the Big Bang Theory. But for the mainstream, I guess they're just too scared and stuck with the wrong theory. And that's we're still stuck with it, unfortunately. Hmm. Yeah, so... I heard some of your interviews from roughly a year ago, and you were talking about developing your own craft using the Lorenz Force and looking for some funding. Where is that project now? Has anything developed on that? We got the funding, we did the test, and it doesn't work. Ah. So we're going on to something else now. That was the Nasikas thruster version two and three, to superconducting thruster. His first version works. It just the first version puts out a small amount of thrust. We were hoping the second and third versions would work better, but apparently, here again, physics and standard thinking has messed up the day for us because the whole invention of the second and third version of his thruster was based on the idea of Lorentz force that you have a coil, a winding solenoid. They know that when you put huge amounts of current through a solenoid coil, it tends to want to expand radially. I hope I'm not getting overly technical. No, I'm I don't think so. These details. And there's two ways that could be occurring. One is through Lorentz force, where the force is acting perpendicular to the coil, so in a radial direction. And the other is the ampere force, where the force acts along the windings, so exactly 90 degrees to the Lorentz force. And they both increase, the amount of force increases with current in about the same way. But physicists chose to interpret it as the Lorentz force instead of ampere. And that's, well, the results of our experiment basically show there is no Lorentz force, that there's only ampere force. And with ampere force, you can't generate thrust with that design. Well, it took a lot of, it wasn't that much money, but it was a sizable amount, which uh, an angel donor gave to us to do the final test. And we had a crowdfunding project for testing the earlier version. The positive thing you can say, well, we found that the standard view is wrong about the Lorentz force. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, these things are going to be trial and error to a point. But there's other things going on that's very interesting. As far as free energy and propulsion, 
I think we're at a watershed. These things are going to be coming out very shortly. And I think it's going to be difficult to stop them, anyway, stop all of them. Mm. Do you think that's why we see things like the buzz around disclosure right now at the Pentagon having their UFO release, Tom DeLong stuff coming out? Now I'm seeing Lockheed Martin is actually going to launch a podcast to, quote, bring some stuff up from Skunk Works. And I mean, I'm pretty skeptical, but I think maybe their hand is being forced. Maybe it's like, they have no choice but to disclose some of this. Otherwise, more and more people are going to realize we've been deceived for a long time. And that's probably not a perspective they want the majority of people to have. So why not just roll it out and act like it's new? Yeah, well, last summer or fall, I got a call from somebody in the U.S. Space Command. And they were interested in if I was willing to work with them to develop electrogravitics technology, things like this, for the military in an open sense, so it wouldn't be classified. Hmm. And I told them yes. Since then, I haven't heard back from them. But they had said that there's been a change higher up in thinking, and that they're ready to be more open about some of these technologies they have classified. So what you're saying is very possible. That is very exciting. And I guess it seems like a lot of this development is clearly within the grasp of human hands. If they're open-minded enough to find it, maybe we don't need a crash at Roswell. But I guess I would ask, what are your thoughts on ET involvement either then or now or in the past? Because a lot of guests do talk about it, yet we're talking about pretty practical things that seem like man can achieve. Well, I agree with what's been said, that there were extraterrestrials in the craft that crashed. Was that what you were wondering? Essentially, I mean, just these technologies in general, you hear rumors that they're developed from reverse engineered craft, that that's where the transistor came from, that most of our modern technology is derived from that incident. But then on the other side, you do hear people saying that a lot of these crafts are probably man-made. They're from a breakaway civilization. They're from Lockheed Martin and deep state projects. So I guess it can be both. You know, if this technology exists, then it could either be brought from elsewhere or just developed naturally. But there is kind of that split in the community of trying to figure out if it's one or the other, but maybe it's both. Yeah, it's both. Brown's technology ended up in the B-2 bomber. That's in my book. Mm -hmm. I have a couple chapters devoted to that. I first came out with that as a paper back in 93, I think it was, at a conference. And I sent a copy to Aviation Week and Space Technology, which is the journal or magazine where the black project scientists had spilled the beans on a lot of classified technologies, including the B-2. And they're the ones that said that they charge the leading edge of the wing on the B-2, and they dump the opposite charged ions out the back in the exhaust. And based on that, I was able to realize that it was Brown's technology they were using because he had gotten two patents on this type of technology, and it was easy to see that's exactly what Brown was proposing. My paper was sent to... His sister, who was married at that time to a fellow who had test flown the B-2 and was said he was so angry after reading my paper that he wouldn't speak to his wife for a whole week about it. <laughs> <laughs> so all the feedback I've gotten is that I was right on. I mean, I have no way to check for sure because the whole matter is classified. From little things you hear, things people have leaked about the B-2 giving off a very strong electric charge that could kill you if you touched it after landing. That's why they have to ground it before opening the plane. Things like this, you realize there's a lot of truth to this. And it's unfortunate, you know, if NASA had this technology, they could have avoided the Columbia space disaster. And I had proposed to them to use Brown's technology to deflect air around the wing but before the disaster happened, and they weren't that interested. So we pay the price for our stupidities. It seems like we do. In the case of the Roswell crash, 
you've heard of Arts Parts, the skin of the craft that was mailed to Art Bell. Mm -hmm. And he gave it then to a few different researchers to analyze. Have you heard about this? Just vaguely, but yeah, tell us how that story ended up. The son of one of the people who had been to the crash site when it happened, it was their farm, managed to pick up a few pieces to keep for himself. They were supposed to give up anything they picked, but he happened to keep a few pieces. And years later, so the son sends this to Art Bell. And they analyze it. They find it's uh, layers of bismuth and magnesium or something like this. Microns, thin layers, one on top of the other, like sandwich. And the whole thing is only maybe a sixteenth of an inch thick, but it's extremely strong and light. So in my book, In Secrets of Anti-Gravity Propulsion, I show a connection to explain what the significance of that is. And I believe it's what they call phase conjugating material, which means that you can develop a force on it if you expose it to the right microwave frequency. So it's possible they were using microwave propulsion in the craft in this way. It's really difficult to know without knowing more about what they found. But there are craft that use microwave beam propulsion, and I discuss this in the book. It's called Project Skyball that was started back in the late 40s, right after World War II. It was worked on at Rocketdyne, and then later Hughes Aircraft took over the work. And Hughes was dissolved, so we don't know where that went. But this would explain these triangular craft that you see hovering and have three luminous circles at each corner. Mm -hmm. So what those are, are their microwave beam generators. And you don't see them, but they're creating a beam that goes down to the earth. And it's a special kind of beam. They make it shaped like sawtooth wave rather than a sine wave. And it's able to actually create a force both on the ground and on the craft. So it's as if the craft is supported on these legs that you don't see. So to us, it seems magical. <laughs> but when you realize these things are just like solid rods under the craft, it doesn't seem so far out anymore. Right. And this all came to me after somebody heard a presentation I made at a conference where I was talking about Brown's work. And he came up to me and wanted to send me a packet of information, which he did. Apparently, his boss, where he worked, had worked on that project and had told him a few things. He wasn't supposed to, but he had leaked a few things and then had put him in touch with the boss's supervisor on that project, who was still working on the project, and gave him more information. Even though they thought they weren't giving that much information out, with what this fellow sent me, I was able to reverse engineer the whole project. Wow. So right now you give me a, you know, 50 million and team of scientists and I could build you one of these. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was going to be one of my questions because Thomas Townsend Brown died in 1985. So that's not that long ago. And of course, people talk a lot about Tesla and the more exotic applications of what he could have been working on. There's a lot of rumors. But Tesla's a little too far removed for us to have like footage and that sort of thing, but not in the case of Townsend Brown. I wonder how this thing was swept under the rug, because there has to be people even alive today who have seen his work, seen his crafts in action, probably footage of it. I mean, are there models still around? Are they showing up at these conferences or anything? Well, people have been duplicating his work. There was one fellow who brought a model that was probably one of the better I've seen, and he had discs about three inches in diameter that were going around and around. So it demonstrates the principle. But I don't know if anybody's built a big one similar to Brown's Maypole demonstrations. It requires somebody willing to put in a little money to do it. You could also make, I suppose, model airplanes fly better <laughs> with attached onto them. Sure. So I guess I also wanted to ask you a little bit more about ether, because you mentioned the detection of the ether, but 
what is the function of the ether in the natural world? I mean, we hear about it so little that I'm sure a lot of us are in the dark, but it sounds provocative because it's tied into so many other kind of fringy ideas and things like alchemy and transmutation. But I am curious, like, what is its natural function? Oh, it sustains the universe. It's not a static substance. It's like your body, you know, your body has got all these reactions going on, molecules going from one place to another, things transform from one thing into another. And that's what's happening in the ether, except that's not at a chemical level, that's at the etheric level. Just like you have different molecules or atoms, you have different types of etherons, as I call them, which is a new concept. The 19th century ether was all the same. This substance was considered to be all the same and inert. And it would just sat there. Waves would be mechanically conducted through it. Now, the ether that I'm talking about, subquantum kinetics, is what's called a reaction diffusion ether, which means that the etherons are both reacting and diffusing through space. If you write the right equation, the right recipe of how these react, you can produce what we call solitons, or in physics, particles. Mathematics would be called a soliton, but it's the analogy of a subatomic particle. We actually have done simulations on this model, which I call Model G. Model G is the recipe of how these ether reactions take place. They produce a particle that matches exactly what they found in particle scattering experiments about 18 years ago, I think. They did experiments to find how the neutron and proton field looks at the center of the particle. And what they found matched exactly what subquantum kinetics says, that the field doesn't go to infinity at the center. It's sort of like a top hat rounded off at the center, which disproves the formation of black holes right there. You can't form black holes if the gravity field is formed in that way. This is another thing that's ignored by physics and astronomy. In other words, from these equations, it's just three equations. It's sort of like the genetic code of the universe. You're able to generate the everything, you know, because if you can generate particles that have charge, spin, and mass, then that's the main goal of physics, is to explain the, the formation of those particles, because once they're formed, at least for the part of physics dealing with creation, anyway, cosmology, mm -hmm. once you've created a particle, shown how a particle is created, just repeat that upteen million times, or billion, trillion, quadrillion, and you've got the matter that forms the universe. This is the beauty of subquantum kinetics is its simplicity, because we begin with the genetic code, so to speak. And that genetic code, you can play with it if you find it. It needs some tweaking. You can make changes. Right now, it's explained an enormous number of things. Plus, it's able to explain all these advanced technologies. It'll explain Randall Mills sun cell technology. It predicts the connection between electricity and gravitation. In other words, Brown's technology. The other thing is that it shows that we live in an open system rather than closed system for the universe. The reason that they give for free energy being impossible, they say, well, you can't create energy out of nothing. But that's only true for closed systems. A physicist will admit if there's an open system, then yes, you can create energy out of nothing. <laughs> hmm. But they want to say that the physical universe is closed, and that's a wrong assumption. Why should the rest of us pay the price of not having these advanced technologies? Just because the physicists want to believe the universe is a closed system. Amen. There's consequences for the stupidities of the physics community. And I say this as a physicist myself, as a <laughs> critic of the physicists, of my colleagues. Sure. And 
So you're a proponent of ether theory. You've developed your own theory of gravity. You've talked about stars and their energy production in pretty unconventional ways. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on something like the possibility of hollow planets or that they might have some different qualities than we've learned about in school books? Did you have in mind a planet? Well, Earth, but I assume that however they're comprised would generally be applicable across the board. But I guess let's start with our own. Well, I'm not a proponent of hollow Earth theories. Mm -hmm. I stick with uh, subquantum kinetics. And if subquantum kinetics predicts it, then in this case, there's no way subquantum kinetics predicts it. You could say or imagine, okay, suppose the center of the Earth is not molten. How that would happen, I wouldn't know. To be honest, I don't agree with the theory. Fair enough. I was just curious because, you know, you do talk about unconventional things, and that's one of them. The other theory is the Earth is growing. Now, that subquantum kinetics does predict. Ah. That there's an expansion in the size of the Earth very slowly, and they've measured this with lasers. It's currently about 10 times less than you would need to explain the growth of the planet to explain the separation of the continents from Pangeum. One theory is that if you shrink the Earth to half its size, all the continents will fit together. The coastlines fit together. Mm -hmm. So you don't need any fancy assumptions about plate tectonics causing all this. This whole thing could be due to slow expansion of the Earth. Well, that's fascinating. I mean, what do you think is at the root cause of that expansion? Is it, again, this effect of being in an open system? And is this material generated from the middle? Well, I haven't really explained it on the broadcast here very much about subquantum kinetics. It replaces the Big Bang Theory. And in its place, you get creation through continuous creation. Matter is being continuously created over the trillions of years, not 13 billion years. We're talking now about trillions of years this can be going on because you don't have the limits that you have in standard cosmology any longer because you've tossed out Big Bang theory, special relativity and general relativity, plus black hole theories and many other things. These are all incorrect, can easily be disproven, which I have done in my books. My other book, Subquantum Kinetics, goes into more detail. Mm -hmm. Not only is matter or particles being created in space, but they're being created inside planets, too. Even the sun. A huge amount of matter is being created every year inside the sun. In the case of the sun, the sun burns part of it. 90% of the sun's energy is fusion, according to subquantum kinetics. The other 10% is what I call genic, spontaneously generated. Some of the matter that's created inside the sun will help to for the 90% of the fusion energy. So that goes into, gets burned. But part of that also gets expelled in the solar wind. And then you have some left over that causes the growth of the sun. So you have to change all of what they understand in astronomy when you go to subquantum kinetics. Because stars like the sun can now grow and pretty soon turn into blue supergiant, like a 30 solar mass star. This is totally different from the standard view, which says that a star like the sun will eventually exhaust its fuels, burn out, and then have maybe a supernova explosion or nova, end up as a dead star. This is all baloney. This is part of the closed system view that physicists put out. Interesting. And you mentioned earlier that you suspect that ancient people knew about the ether and subquantum kinetics to some extent. I know that's in your book, Earth Under Fire, I believe. Well, Genesis of the Cosmos. Gotcha. Okay. And uh, as far as I understand, you say the clues are in astrology and tarot. Is that right? Right. I go into that in modern Genesis of the Cosmos. The way that happened, I had been explaining my theory to a friend, and she knew about the Tarot, and she said, well, it sounds a lot like the Tarot, that I should take a course to learn about it, which I did. 
This was in Cambridge, Massachusetts, right there in Harvard Square. They had a course. As I was attending every week, they were doing on Arcanum every week. And every week I'd see another part of my theory being explained to me. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out the first 11 Tarot Arcana, this is like the Marseille deck, the original version, because they tried to change it, and then by changing it, they messed up. So don't go to the newer Tarot decks. You should go to the original. The first 11 Arcana explain a theory of the creation of the universe. And we know this dates back to at least ancient Egypt. The gypsies are said to have gotten it from the Egyptian magi, who were instructing the priests the initiates into the mysteries of Osiris. And this was the science they were teaching them. They were explaining the meanings of the frescoes on the wall, of what they called the gallery of the Sphinxes, in a chamber under the Sphinx. Supposedly they had these, the instruction went on there. This appears to be very ancient science. You find it in the Zodiac. Esoterically, the esoteric tradition is that there's a connection between astrology and the tarot as far as matching up the signs to the arcana. And so I started looking at the zodiac too. I found that there too, the signs, which are sort of psychological or personality descriptions, if you look at them as universal principles, so you're using the analogy part of the mind, which not everybody can use because not everyone is adept at using analogic thinking. And really, to do this kind of work, you need to be good at that, because there's some people that have difficulty seeing, just like you have people that are colorblind, there's people that have difficulty seeing analogies from one circumstance to another. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm a systems theorist, so I use this all the time. That's what system theorists do, is they bring ideas from one field into another by making analogies. Right. And I think this is really interesting because when I've heard you talk about it before, you've mentioned as an example where we see this in the Zodiac would be that Sagittarius's arrow is aimed at the heart of the scorpion, or at least that's uh, been written before, I guess. And 15,000 years ago, that arrow would have lined up. And that kind of gets us into, I guess, a warning of super waves, which is another major aspect of your work. Yeah, and that's what led me to the superwave theory. I found this message encoded in the Zodiac. Here are these constellations that are distributed across the sky, which is where the Zodiac is. And these two pointers up there, Sagittarius and Scorpio, those two arrows, if you look where they're pointing at, they're pointing at the galactic center, essentially. And the myth says that he's aiming at the heart of the scorpion, which is the star Antares. So you get a sighting there between the arrow pointer and the heart. And you see that currently the arrow is not aimed at the heart. But back about 16,000 years ago, it did go through the heart because the stars are moving. That's why you have to see the positions of the stars back in time. At that time, it was passing within just a few tenths of a degree of the galactic center. That's how accurate they were showing it. And that was eight times better than Shapley had done it with the Mount Polymer telescope. So here's something, a myth at least 5,000 years old, is telling us stuff that we only found today using radio telescopes. Well, Mount Polymer telescope, and later with the radio telescope, we were able to get a closer fix. What the message showed, they used geometry to show the idea of the arrow launched from the galactic center actually arriving at Earth. You do that with geometry. One radian concept is demonstrated there. All this is explained in the book. The date of the arrow going through the heart would be the date of the eruption of the galactic center. That's what I concluded. I found that this wave of energy must have come by the Earth, that it wasn't just something that happened out there 23,000 light years away, but it's something that actually traveled to us. And on the way, it triggered the two closest supernova remnants, the two closest supernovas to Earth, to the solar system, the Vela supernova and the Crab supernova. They line up on this event horizon, which is a wave of energy that would have gone out from the galactic center at the speed of light. 
knowing that this happened, you can see what's going on out there in space because it's this wave of energy still going out and it's creating radio waves, which astronomers call the galactic radio background emission. Hmm. I mean, that is fascinating. And to think that this myth encodes something that would have been applied 15,000 years ago, I mean, is that an implication that somehow we were at the same level of development that we are now 15,000 years ago? Well, the Egyptians say in their myths that the science there, the sciences were taught to them by Thoth, who came from above. Mm -hmm. He was a Ibis-headed god. That's the way they represented him. So this could be a reference to E.T., an E.T. origin for the physics. And this I would believe because the stuff that they have encoded in the Zodiac alone would require technologies like what we use to find a three-degree Kelvin background radiation. We had developed superconductors, helium cool detectors, computers, radio telemetry, rocketry to get the satellite up above the atmosphere, all this. And yet they have encoded the hot and cold spots of the three-degree Kelvin radiation in the Zodiac. Here we're talking about a very advanced technology. They encoded stuff in the story of Atlantis. Atlantis, everyone takes it literally, but it's actually, if you study Plato, it's supposed to be taken allegorically. And if you understand subquantum kinetics and reaction diffusion systems, you realize Atlantis is a myth about the creation of a subatomic particle. So it's a lot smaller, actually, than people think. Hmm. There's the other part of the Atlantis myth, which is in a different book, the Timaeus book, which talks about the flood. And there, that's also allegorical. And there, Atlantis represents the North American ice sheet, which when it melted, it created a huge flood of water. And I've explained how this happened, both in my dissertation, and now I published a paper on this last year, Referee Journal, where I explain about the glacier wave phenomenon, which is how these waves of water would have descended from the ice sheet because the ice sheet was up to two and a half, three kilometers high at the center. During warm periods when the sun was melting the ice, you had these lakes form on the surface and you would have had dam failures and floods of water coursing across the ice sheet. And as they did, they would create a domino effect and create a huge wave that would sweep down the ice sheet, gaining energy. And by the time it reaches the edge, you're up to maybe 300 meters high, traveling at a few hundred miles an hour, maybe a thousand kilometers long wall of water. And it would have the force to actually surmount mountains that are two kilometers high. This would be the origin of the great flood myth, which you find in all cultures around the world. And I go into this in Earth Under Fire. I have a whole chapter just about the flood. I think two chapters, one dealing with the European and Asian myths and the other with the Indian myths. North American Indians have a lot of myths about the flood. Right. Yeah, it seems like you've put together many, many pieces of the puzzle. Of course, our time is winding down together, but I did want to ask you maybe just to revisit the conversation we started with when it comes to the free energy devices you mentioned that are right on our doorstep, perhaps, is there a particular group or two that you think are the closest? Or is there any kind of resources you could give us to look into maybe some of the other Thomas Townsend Browns of our age, the rebels of science that are close to actually releasing things that are very exciting? Yeah, I can't talk about that. I don't want to jeopardize anybody. Fair. But they do exist. I know they exist. And I believe my prediction to be correct that we're on the verge of a new era. And it's a matter of a lot of people making the breakthrough at the same time so that no one can get stopped. Yes. But pretty soon you'll have a machine in your house that will be generating energy. You'll be feeding back into the grid and getting paid for it. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds great. I mean, I've heard those claims made, but I'm still waiting. Yeah, keep patient. It's coming. 
I do hope you are right. And well, Paul, this has really been amazing. Just so much information. You're clearly a really smart guy digging into some pretty big questions and ideas. What are some of the next things you're going to be working on? Right now, I'm trying to prepare the paper on the Neanderthal extinction. I'm going through a lot of ice core data. When you bring all the data together is when you realize it hits you in the face. (laughs) And that's the thing. It's very interdisciplinary. That's the kind of thing that system scientists do. So here I'm bringing data from ice core field, from anthropology, from oceanography, the carbon-14, where comes oceanography, and then the knowledge about superwaves. The other thing I, I like to mention, I guess uh, today we're recording this, Stephen Hawking died. And I just want to say that I believe he was wrong. <laughs> he is greatly overrated. He's getting a lot of publicity now. But the black hole idea he came up with is wrong. It can be easily disproven. The point is that stars, if they go into a collapse phase, they end up generating so much energy spontaneously in their cores, there's no way they can collapse. And the other thing is, even if they did collapse, as the star collapses, the gravity field doesn't go to infinity, like they said. It goes to zero. At some point, it's not going to have any energy to make itself collapse. I go into this in subquantum kinetics for anybody that's interested. Wow. Yeah. And I love that systems approach. It almost seems like the sciences have been set up to be compartmentalized so that we don't have this cross interdisciplinary type of work. Well, systems theory should be taught in every university. And it's not, unfortunately. Ludwig von Berlanfi, the father of systems theory, said that ideally a person should take at least ideally four years of systems theory and then specialize in a field like physics, sociology. This way, they have the big picture to start with, and they're able to bring stuff from other fields. The way things are done now, it's like everyone speaks a different language. They don't know what the other guy is talking about. Right. So discoveries are made in one field, and they don't come into the other field. So that's why it's important that we get systems theory taught, looking at these new approaches. I'm with you, man. And this has been really awesome. We did touch on several of your books, but do remind people about your websites. Both contain a ton of information. A person can get lost for days. I would know, but lots of great stuff there. So where should people go to dig deeper into these things that we've talked about? Well, the website where I sell my books and also videos and also has a lot of videos free for download, not only videos, but papers for download is etheric.com. It's E-T-H-E-R-I-C.com. And also there's a video there I'm selling for $20, which is a Starburst Foundation video, which explains the origin of the universe according to subquantum kinetics. And it's about 30, 40 minutes. Excellent video. It's made with NASA clips and NASA images. If you want to really know the truth about how the universe was created, this video gives you a quick overview. And then my other site is starburstfound.org. That's the Starburst Foundation website. That also has a lot of information on all these topics, superwaves, subquantum kinetics, extraterrestrial communication, and feeling tone theory, which I had also done some work in thought formation, psychology area. Hmm. (laughs) Wow. Well, Excellent, man. Clearly you're on to a lot of complex things, and I really respect the work that you're doing out there. Keep it up, and hopefully we can talk again in the future. Okay. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. Sweet champagne supernova, ladies and gentlemen, in that deluxe apartment in the sky. Paul Laviolette, 70 years young. I'm really glad he was willing to talk to me. I sought him out because I really wanted to focus the show on anti-gravitic crafts, and Paul seems like one of the best people for that subject. I'm barely smart enough to do it, but I love to talk about the things that physics leaves out. I love talking about ether, so I'm a happy guy. You know, I also figured, hey, I've never heard Paul talk about hollow planets, but let me toss that out there, see if he tosses it back. Because ether, new theories of gravity, doubting the models we have in a variety of ways, 
I thought maybe we'd hit a bullseye there, but it's completely okay that he doesn't see that as a possibility. I think there's a ton to like about Paul's work. I have a huge amount of respect for him. We talked a bit off air, and I know that he is a little cynical, but who wouldn't be? You spend your life working on very complex science and new models, digging up the evidence to support them, being told that you need more peer-reviewed papers, then you get those peer-reviewed publications and you still feel like your life's work has had little impact? Man, and even if you don't agree 100% with every aspect of Paul's work, as a human being, you have to have some respect for the journey and a little empathy for a person who might not feel as appreciated as they might have hoped as their earthly story arc starts to come to a close. Of course, with some of the things going on right now, I worry that aspects of the conspiracy community have gotten a little anti-science or anti-intellectual, and that's not a good way to be. I mean, I'm anti-establishment. I even think, as we talked about today, spending too long in the system can leave you brainwashed and indoctrinated to think a certain way. We know this. But as long as you can navigate that course without falling into those traps, you gotta respect a person who swims in those waters. I mean, I wouldn't even know the first thing about writing a peer-reviewed paper, or even a book for that matter. So what do I know, really? <laughs> I'm rambling, but, you know, this show to me has always been about the exploration of different possibilities, and lately it seems like I'm seeing a lot of comments from people who have settled on one conclusion and are now dismissive of anyone else who doesn't fit within it, and I don't love that. But anyway, another curiosity of mine more related to the material is that, of course, I'd have to have a much better understanding of physics to find the answer to this question, but it seems strange to me that we have these laws of physics, we have the laws of thermodynamics, and we could even toss in the laws of gravity here as well. We have all these frameworks for how things are supposed to work, and these frameworks are obviously flawed, but they do hold up well enough that thousands of scientists never really see door number three. It's very interesting to me how they could keep people quarantined like that in that mental space, but... Clearly, that is the case. That's what happens. I know at one point, Paul did mention using NASA data and imagery in our superwave conversation, which would be a trigger phrase for some people, but I don't think that's a detail worth obsessing over. I find NASA to be just another wing of the American military, essentially. I don't trust much of what comes out of them, and obviously our guest today draws some very different conclusions and is also upset by the suppression of many different things under the scientific umbrella, and that's enough for me. I would rather appreciate our common ground. I think Paul should be really proud of his body of work. It is diverse, and not a lot of people are going to dig into this depth on these kind of topics. I love the things he has to say about the ancient world, how he sees the Zodiac encoded with some of the same science that he's worked on. Those things alone, on top of anti-gravitic crafts, pegging Thomas Townsend Brown to the Philadelphia experiment, ether physics... I mean, all of that is one hell of a wild ride, but then to ice that cake, you throw in his work and theories on pulsars? I mean, that's not nothing. To boldly assert that some of the stars we see in the night sky are artificial and act as beacons for emerging civilizations to recognize, decode, and possibly respond to? <laughs> this is exactly the kind of thing that I want to be pondering. Well, that and that the inner Earth houses civilizations far older and far more advanced than anything on the surface world and inside is a robust and vibrant reality of abundance, a city of mystics beneath Tibet, fairylands in northern Europe, and maybe even Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. <laughs> but that's my own can of worms to unpack. Paul ain't got time for that. But in all seriousness, if you found value in this show, reach out to Paul via the comments section of his website. He mentioned to me that that is his preferred method of correspondence. That being that a person read a piece on the website, and then if you have some questions or feedback, you leave comments there, and that's how he likes to talk to people. But also, if you have any interest in his diverse range of books, we kind of touched on most of them, but how nice would it be to be 70 years old and wake up and feel the warm glow of a spike in sales for the books you've worked on for years? <laughs> I don't mean for this to sound so sales pitchy, but that feeling of validation is such a priceless gift, and we have opportunities to provide people with those rare moments all the time. Every show we do, really. But I think there's probably an equation somewhere that shows how valuable those feelings are based on 
the depth of work times age of the person to the square root of how impactful the adoption of your conclusions would be. And given that Paul thinks the galactic superwave could be in our future, that's pretty damn impactful. And I don't know, but I think he makes a convincing case. I know he's very serious about his work and research. He wants to be very academic about it. Got to respect it. I don't know really what else would support the samples he's found in the ice cores and that other evidence. <laughs> I got no idea. But then we talk about ancient aliens and the mythologies that suggest that beings helped lead people down into the earth in times of surface hazards. There has to be some catalyst for these higher level beings to even know about us and furthermore to even care. So I see a few scenarios. They're already in the earth. And when they know trouble is coming, they lead some friendly tribes down to their neck of the woods. Or this help comes from some type of guardianship, be it a spiritual one or a multidimensional one or whatever. Or in the galactic superwave scenario, it's such a big event that the implications are so obvious to a wide range of civilizations that the most advanced would probably just get out in front of it and help the rest of us. Like we might do if a volcano blew, or a forest fire broke out, or BP spilled a bunch of oil in the Gulf. You know, we'd get out there and we'd try to get as many ignorant creatures out of the way as we could. I'm spitballing here. But I could see that as a scenario in the insanely wide range of paradigms I'm willing to consider. And if you didn't hear the Plus Show, the galactic superwave stuff might not make sense. You should probably just sign up already. But in this week's episode, we get deep into some of the things I'm glossing over now. The galactic superwave threat, Paul's work on pulsars, and the idea that they're intergalactic, intelligently designed signals or beacons for emerging civilizations to decode, crop circles and force field beaming technology, the prospect of a federation in the cosmos, the exotic technology used to bring down the Twin Towers. Yeah, he goes there. Also, the technology we've seen in events like the Norway Spiral and other strange Ring of Light style rocket launches we've seen in recent years, Blue Beam and Black Budget technology's ability to create illusions, subspace. Yeah, remember that term subspace. There's an upcoming THC all about the idea of hidden spaces, and maybe someone knows about them and keeps them hidden. But also, we talked with Paul about how Ancient Man dealt with the galactic superwave underground tunnel networks, and the Bosnian Pyramid. There you have it. Come on over. The plus water's fine. Five bucks a month, 60 bucks a year, and you get to enjoy so, so much more out of this show, out of me, and out of the higher side guests. So I hope we liked that, especially the anti-gravity stuff. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being so cool. And of course, thanks to Paul for dumbing down his complex work for someone like me. Your move, quarantiners of secret sciences, pulsar placers, crop circle makers, and galactic superwave humanity savers. Your fucking move. Woke up this morning with light in my eyes And then realized it was dark outside It was light Coming down from the sky I don't know who or why Must be those strangers that come every night Whose saucer-shaped light put people uptight Leave blue-green footprints that Glow in the dark I hope they get home Beer. My toothpaste was smeared. 
Hi.